Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. More content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. This week, we're finishing up our endocrine module with a talk on adrenal emergencies and an acid-base workshop. We also had a journal update on the use of D-dimers in aortic dissection. Let's start with our core content talk on adrenal emergencies. This was given by one of our PGY2 residents, Trudy Cloyd. Trudy focused on congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH, and adrenal suppression associated with chronic steroid use. CAH is actually a group of genetic disorders in which the patient has a deficiency of enzymes leading to limitation of the gland's ability to make certain vital hormones. In the majority of cases, the adrenal glands don't make enough cortisol. The mineralocorticoids like aldosterone and androgens like testosterone are variably affected. Decreased cortisol production leads to decreased feedback on the hypothalamus and pituitary glands. This leads to increased corticotropin-releasing hormone and adrenocorticotropic hormone, or ACTH, leading to hyperplasia of the adrenal glands. In 21-hydroxylase deficiency, the classic CAH, both aldosterone and cortisol are markedly decreased. Patients with this form will typically present very early in life, around two to three weeks of age, with poor feeding and vomiting, as well as electrolyte changes, typically hyponatremia and hyperkalemia. This is a life-threatening situation that must be rapidly recognized and treated with volume expansion with crystalloids, isotonic saline is the typical approach, dextrose for hypoglycemia, and steroid replacement, usually with hydrocortisone. We more commonly see acquired adrenal insufficiency in the ED. This can be either primary or secondary. Primary or Addison's disease is a failure of the adrenal gland to make cortisol, aldosterone, or both, and in developed countries is usually a result of autoimmune destruction. Patients will have increased ACTH levels as negative feedback in the pituitary is suppressed. Secondary adrenal insufficiency results from impaired stimulation of the adrenal glands. The pituitary simply isn't producing enough ACTH to stimulate the adrenal glands to secrete hormones. This is most commonly caused by exogenous chronic steroid use, followed by either an abrupt withdrawal or a stressor on the body demanding more steroids to be provided. What happens is that that chronic steroid use suppresses the pituitary from secreting ACTH, and then when the body needs more steroids, it's not able to ramp up production. Acquired adrenal insufficiency typically manifests with nonspecific symptoms, including generalized weakness, nausea, vomiting, and fatigue. The classic lab finding, again, is going to be hyperkalemia and hyponatremia, which is seen in primary adrenal insufficiency due to low aldosterone. In the secondary form, hyponatremia still exists due to water retention from low cortisol, but potassium levels are typically normal. So what do we see in the ED and how do we treat it? The most common ED presentation is of a patient who is chronically on exogenous steroids, whether that be for COPD, asthma, or an autoimmune issue, and then they get a stressor. Typically, this is infection. The stress on the body increases its need for cortisol, but the body isn't able to ramp up production by stimulating the adrenal glands. This is particularly important in the patient with sepsis, severe sepsis or septic shock, as their shock will often be refractory to typical treatment. These patients are going to need stress-dose steroids since they can't produce them. In the ED, administration of 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone is the recommended treatment, although Rosen's also offers dexamethasone 4 milligrams as an alternate option. If I know the patient is on chronic steroids and presents with shock, I'm quick to give that hydrocortisone dose. Always suspect exogenous steroid use in refractory shock and consider hydrocortisone administration in this circumstance. As with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, we also need to focus on volume expansion and fixing the electrolyte disturbances. 
Our journal update this week discussed an article in the Annals of Emergency Medicine just from a couple months ago looking at the use of D-dimer in the workup of aortic dissection. Over the last 10 years or so, D-dimer has been more and more studied in the workup of dissection. The idea is that D-dimer is formed when clot is formed and the dissection edge creates an area of clot formation leaking D-dimer into the serum. If D-dimer was found to be 100% sensitive, this would be a great way to potentially decrease CTs for dissection evaluation. This article was a meta-analysis and systematic review looking at four different studies. The studies were cross-sectional with prospective enrollment. They found a sensitivity of about 98% and a specificity of about 42%. When you work out these numbers into likelihood ratios, you're going to get a negative likelihood ratio of about 0.05 and a positive likelihood ratio of 2.11. There are a couple of issues with these numbers. While sensitivity was 98%, the confidence intervals ranged from 96 to 99%. The lower end there is a little more worrisome. Now the negative likelihood ratio here is great. We'd like to have a negative likelihood ratio less than 0.1. On the other side, the specificity isn't so good and the positive likelihood ratio is poor. So what does this all mean? If you have a low risk patient and then get a negative D-dimer, this risk stratifies them to a very low risk of aortic dissection. We never eliminate risk completely though. Whether that's low enough to obviate the need for a CT depends on your assessment. Because the specificity here is so low, a positive result doesn't mean much. This is exactly what we see with D-dimer and PE assessment as well. A negative test result is useful in risk stratification, but a positive one isn't. It seems that the world of emergency medicine is very split on the issue of using D-dimer in dissection assessment. The big issue is that dissection is a high-risk disease and we don't want to miss any of them. And so perhaps the rule-out characteristics here aren't robust enough. D-dimer clearly is not useful as a rule-in test. ASEP recently published a clinical policy on the topic, and their conclusion was that D-dimer should not be used alone to rule out dissection. The bottom line to me is that D-dimer isn't ready for prime time. We need further study on the topic. Preferably, we need a prospective study where all patients get a D-dimer and then get definitive imaging. Since dissection is relatively rare, we're probably going to need a big, multi-center trial, and that would also be great for generalizability of results. For right now, I don't think we can be using this in clinical practice to rule out dissection. Now, both of the articles that we referred to are going to be in the show notes. Finally, we had an acid-base workshop, and I find that it's hard to teach acid-base on a podcast. Instead, I'm going to drop a copy of all the cases that we did in the show notes so that you can take a look at those and review them on your own. In a couple of weeks, we'll post the answers to those questions, along with a little bit of a narrative on each case for you to review. Well, that's all we've got for Core EM this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.